This is Dylan FM, the podcast that goes deep into the work and world of Bob Dylan. You're listening to an extended episode, available exclusively to FM Plus or premium subscribers, with your host, Craig Danuloff. What I like best about reading Song and Dance Man Volume 1 and talking to Michael Gray about it on a chapter-by-chapter basis on this podcast was the context it provided about Bob Dylan as a songwriter. Everyone knows that Dylan had a relationship with folk, rock, literature, and the blues. But over the course of that book, we learned how deep and intricate and impactful that relationship was. While never focusing on the man as a biographer would, Michael Gray provided us with a biography of Dylan's mind, how he voraciously ingested folk music, and how it shaped his songwriting how he went through his formative teenage years at exactly the right time to be washed over by Little Richard and Fats Domino and Elvis Presley, and how the best of their innovations were fused into his DNA. How he sat in B.J. Rolfson's literature class at Hibbing High and obviously paid close attention and learned modes of thinking and expressions that he would call on just a few years later and how the blues records that some of his Hibbing and St. Paul friends had initiated a seemingly encyclopedic awareness of the musical and lyrical inspirations that is fueling him still to this day. Volume 1 of Song and Dance Man destroyed the idea of Bob Dylan as a prodigy who graduated from Hibbing High in 1959 with all of the tools he needed to fulfill the sense of destiny that he spoke of in the 60 Minutes interview. Instead, It showed us exactly how Dylan did something that he would advise others to do in the interview shown in the Rolling Thunder movie. He created himself. He studied and borrowed from scores of the best artists and thinkers that had come before him, applying his genuine gifts and talents to help him create things that were truly new, but which had precedence nevertheless. This doesn't diminish what Dylan did, but it does help explain it. It's fun to think that Dylan just spits out lines like those that made him famous, but it's far more interesting, in many ways impressive, to know at least a little about why he spit them out. Song and Dance Man Volume 1 gives us the background to do that. It was almost a decade between the first and second editions of Song and Dance Man, and Volume 2 of the new 50th anniversary series is largely taken from that late 80s update. Today we're talking to Michael Gray about chapter one in volume two. The volume is called Yonder Come Sin, and the chapter is called The Coming of Slow Train. But it starts with Street Legal. And for me at least, it casts that album in a whole new light. You'll hear Gray again help us to see the big picture, how Dylan's own views and goals came through in the totality of his songwriting over the years, and how street legal should have, or at least could have, made the eventual emergence of the gospel Bob a lot less shocking. We talk about that evolution in this episode, and we'll continue in future episodes walking through chapters of Volume 2, which you can get now at Amazon in paperback or on Kindle. There's a link in the show notes. Now, here's our talk about Song and Dance Man, The Art of Bob Dylan, Volume 2 which is called Yonder Come Sin, and today we're looking at Chapter 1, The Road to Slow Train.
All right, Michael. Hello. Welcome back. Hi, Craig. We make it to volume two. Indeed. We've established his vast and deep influences, what he did with them and how. You know, the tone of the book shifts a little bit because you start looking at specific work. It was littered throughout the first part, but you never stopped and said, okay, this is blonde on blonde. Let's talk about it. But for the next two volumes, we're kind of specific on albums and songs. Um, yeah, well, that's that's because the, uh, the work this time was uh, catching up on the 80s and volume three catching up on the 90s, whereas volume one, that's, uh, that's most of it, not the pre-war blues chapter, but most of it is from when it was all happening at the time. And so, you know, the themes worked well, whereas here, I think the albums you have to more or less take the albums one by one, and I think that's what we do. Starting here with uh, Street Legal, because what I'm saying in the book is that Street Legal is it's a terrific album in itself, but it's also very much laying the groundwork for saying, look, I'm, uh, I'm heading for Jesus here, particularly in some of the songs. And, and then, of course, what we get after that is Jesus. We get Slow Train Coming and Saved, and some outtakes, one of which is Yonder Comes In, which is the title of this volume. In retrospect, even, treating the first part as the, um, you know, the, the basics of Bob Dylan to some degree, the, the infrastructure of him relative to his use of all those other forms of music, it really yeah. does put a put a base of understanding under him for those of us coming now that I I think it, it feels like the best way to do the book, even if you did it, you know, after the fact. But before we jump into Street Legal, I, the, the, the very start of volume two points out this transition that you just talked about, but in, again, in kind of much more overall tones, right? You start by talking about Bob Dylan's sort of history of, of morality or taking a principled stance to things that you do in life. And then you yeah. walk us through a series of steps before, you know, frankly, the, the, the clarity and, and convincing case you make essentially for street legal being the beginning of the gospel years is, is phenomenal. We'll get to that. I want to go through that transition first. It starts out, you, you point out a bunch of morality you know, or moral clauses in songs from the 60s. Yeah. From from Masters of War to, to more subtle ones. And you talk about the shift from, to some degree, external to internal, you know, back to external, which is, I think is the thing that happens through Dylan quite a lot. How much of that transition in his viewpoint were you able to see in retrospect, or was it evident at the time? Uh at the time when I first encountered him, it was 1964. So, so he was um, the newest album was another side of the fourth album, which some people were uh, complaining about because it wasn't so strictly a protest album as the previous two had been. And so, uh, you know, my first introduction to him really was as a person who had plenty to protest about. That is to say. Uh, someone who cared about uh, the state of the world, and uh, and that's the that's the basis of it, you know. I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of popular uh, singer songwriters just 
just write about their love life or uh, their theoretical love life or, you know, how much they like drinking beer or whatever it might be. But uh, Dylan has never been in that sort of uh, camp. And uh, even, you know, when I came to hear the earlier work, it was just riddled with struggles with morality of one kind or another. I mean, he was a serious young man, you know. And, uh, and of course, he, he sort of relishes all that, even in the stuff he hadn't written himself. Earlier things that he recorded, like, uh, what you're going to do when the devil comes creeping in your room. You know, that's not, um, that's not Elton John, is it? You make the point, and this happens over just a few pages as you set the stage in this, in this volume, that he essentially starts maybe suggesting outwards to people that it's not so much um, an externally applied moral code, but that you need to look at yourself and you need to take responsibility. Here, here's yes. our, first, uh, our first selection from, from this volume. It was not, however, a sudden change from the hip amoralist to the priest. Dylan had seized on a new code, but remained utterly consistent in his preoccupation with struggling for a code. Along with this unfailing sense of the need for moral clarity, Dylan's work also Dylan's work has also been consistently characterized by a yearning for salvation. In fact, the quest for salvation might be called the central theme of Bob Dylan's entire output. And then you you point out a bunch of songs with cases where you evidence this Memphis Blues again, Senor, I Shall Be Released, and Dirge. And you specifically talk about how a quest for salvation permeates John Wesley Harding and Blood on the Tracks. And, and it does, doesn't it? Uh, you never get away from that for long in Bob Dylan. I mean, um, uh, and sometimes it's a song, you're, you're listening to a song in which he's perhaps agonizing about this. An early-ish one would be uh, My Back Pages, you know, where he's basically wringing his hands and saying, I shouldn't have been taking on these sort of traditional, conventional sets of assumptions. I, I should have been working it out for myself. And that really is the theme then that we get all through the 1960s and on. I shall be released, yes. You know, the, the quest for salvation is still there, very much so. But what, how to find that salvation is a, is a problem that he wrestles with, I think. And um, he wrestles with it over a, over a long period of his work. And um, he doesn't really come to thinking he's uh, found it until until he renounces all that individual code finding and submits himself to uh, the code of the born-again people. It is interesting how the, the public narrative, which is that the gospel years are this little sliver, yeah. contrasts with the reality, as you said, the Bible's you know, throughout his entire career. And, and you now make a case more convincingly for the first part of his career, it's pretty evident to anyone who listens that it's never left after. And mm -hmm. so we, we really now can see the, the whole arc from the covers and, and the first album. And, and now he didn't even leave that far as some of us might have thought in the, the late 60s, at least, 
in the 70s, uh, it, it becomes much more fluid as opposed to this short aberration. Yes. Yeah, I think it's career long. And so is his extraordinary knowledge of biblical text. And I mean, this is so clear in this volume two, in this Yonder Comes Sin uh, material, uh, all through. I mean, not just, again, not just the the so-called Born Again album, but all the way through the 80s. Uh, you know, we're looking particularly at great songs like Groom Still Waiting at the Altar and Joker Man and, of course, Blind Willie McTell and so on. And um, in all these, the use of biblical text is vast. Just glance along through some of the footnotes uh, in these chapters. And, uh, I mean, very seldom does he just quote straightforwardly a verse of biblical text. But very, very often he twists one or, or builds a, a poetic line because he knows one. And, um, you know, this is, this is not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, this is, or, or, or Genesis. Uh, it's everything. I mean, there are quotes here and, and uses that he has built upon here from oh, many, many books of the Bible. I mean, not just Leviticus and Deuteronomy either, but Daniel, uh, uh, Lamentations, Job. Uh, uh, Ezekiel, Revelation, Old and New Testament. Uh, uh, his knowledge of this material is phenomenal, and uh, it, it was a very rewarding, though difficult, task for me when, in order to tackle this work of his properly, I had to actually, from cover to cover, read the King James Bible. And it is almost always the King James Bible that he uses. It's, it's, it's the poetic version in the English language. It's the version that is saturated in the work of Shakespeare as well as Bob Dylan. It, it reminds me of the way you talked about his use of the blues, which was also not simple quoting from the you know, most known, but yeah. reinterpretation, subtle shifting around an application of principles from obscure corners. Yes. It's one of those things about him that's, you know, it's impossible to diagram, but you kind of wish someone could explain, you know, how, how do you get, how do you take 15% of this obscure thing and find a brand new way to put it in? Hmm. It, it is, it's remarkable, but it, unfortunately there's not, you at least I wish there was some other way to explain it, but it's especially at the volume. This is what comes in with kind of the stuff Scott Warmoth does. You could imagine one of them and go, oh, that was clever. He remembered that movie line. He put it here. And then you see the one sentence with three movies, but jumbled and yes. the, the sophistication of it, which is, I mean, yes. that's maybe the third version of it, right? So we have the blues, the Bible and, and other authors who have all been assimilated, regurgitated, reapplied throughout yeah. this career. And of course, and of course, all the anonymous authors of uh, folk song. Right. As for Dylan's extraordinary knowledge of the Bible, I, uh, it, uh, 
I'm just amazed by it over and over again. I mean, I've been, you know, I've been proofreading for this uh, for this volume and now looking at the finished text again, and uh, it just staggers me over and over how much of this material he knows in, inwardly enough to use it so creatively and so resourcefully. He's not, uh, you know, he never skims the surface of it. He really knows it, and he takes it seriously. Um, he hasn't always taken it seriously as as religious truth. I mean, that that probably was quite a brief period, but he, he took it seriously as literature his whole life, it seems to me. So as we look at this, this shift, though, from 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 morality to salvation, um, you have an interesting quote I'm going to read, which comes back in a in a second rejoinder a little bit later. From blood on the tracks onward, Dylan shifts away from women as savior, and to trace this process is to hear his slow train in the distance, to find his quest for salvation refocusing itself into a quest for Christ. Well, you know, uh, I mean that just. That summarizes what I think is the situation. Um, in terms of, uh, if we're coming on to street legal and the way that that moves us from Sarah to Jesus, if you like, uh, I I have to say I've always felt uneasy about about uh, applying such biographical, such a so I've been I've always been uneasy about applying such a, a a biographical focus onto this material because it's never been my purpose to write his biography and the work ought to stand alone. But you know, as soon as you have someone whose personality and charisma and and famousness is as great as Bob Dylan's, then um then it's impossible really. To just take the work as if this is by someone you know nothing about. I mean, that's just not possible for us. Um, it's the advantage we have in Shakespeare because we do so we do know so little about him, uh, and the work you know the work stands alone. But in the in the case of Street Legal, it just seemed to me inevitable that he was that he was. Um, that he was going through this process. And in in my own defense of, of bringing this biographical stuff into it, I would I would just say that I uh, certainly never mentioned Sarah in print until after he had recorded and released a song called Sarah on Desire. Uh, you know, I mean, and he put her into uh, Ronaldo and Clara, uh, you know, he did not keep her private at that point in, in in his career. And so you make the point again in in Dylan's evolution and what he's sharing with us through through his work, an increased preoccupation with the idea of betrayal. And then you say the following about this the shift and and point out another element of it. This strand begins to appear on planet waves. I ain't hauling any of my lambs to the marketplace anymore. And it produces in Dylan's work something 
that at first comes across as an astonishing leap of arrogance. That is, that Dylan quite clearly starts to identify with Christ. He begins to do this not in the conventional taught sense, that Jesus is my friend sent by God to be a human just like me, but in the sense of confusing himself with Christ. From Blood on the Tracks onward, we are given parallel after parallel between Dylan and Christ, both charismatic leaders, both message bringers to their people, both martyrs become of because both get betrayed. In retrospect, it is as if Dylan eventually converts to Christianity because of the way he has identified with Christ and understood his struggles through his own. That's quite a leap, really. But, you know, it's very clear on Blood on the Tracks, you know. In a little hilltop village, they gambled for my clothes. I bargained for salvation. They gave me a lethal dose. I mean, who else is he identifying with? Took my crown of thorns. Yeah, yeah. I have always loved Street Legal. I can't understand how anybody ever didn't, frankly. Um, You know, it seems like incredible Dylan nitpicking, you know, even if the production's not, you know, as separated as you might like. The Uh sound, the vibrancy of language, everything else that's going on there is just so interesting, even, frankly, if you don't understand it. But as you start to apply and go through it the way you do in, in here in volume two, it is Dylan's personal experience and observations that are coming through quite clearly. So I'm saying you can enjoy it without it, but you can find so much in there if you do know this stuff, and especially as as you, you know, as you pointed out. I, I would say that uh, at the time when it was new, there were things that people could uh, demur from about it. I mean, I remember Greil Marcus saying that Dylan's voice sounded dead on this album, which I didn't agree with, but it was a point of view. And um, I remember. You know, when I when I met Dylan backstage at Earl's Court in 78, when he was doing those marvellous shows and the album was brand new, one of the things that really surprised me that he said, not to me, to Robert Shelton, but in my presence, was uh, the old songs really do stand up, don't they? And I found myself thinking, it's not the old songs you want to worry about, Bob, it's the new songs. And, you know, what I was thinking of were things like Baby Stop Crying. I mean, you know, this is, this is not songwriting on a, on a par with A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall or, or Tears of Rage. But, of course, um, you know, I remember the very first time I heard Blonde on Blonde, I sort of fretted a bit in case it was a bit, closer to pop music than I thought of Bob Dylan as as having to be. So so street legal, yes. I mean, uh, and yes, people bitched about the production. What can you say? It's uh, it's an album that's just full of warmth and life and, and vibrancy, yeah. And some of the tracks, some of the tracks mean more to me than others and not necessarily particularly the ones that I single out as the most significant major songs in the book. I'm, I'm surprised now, in retrospect, I suppose, to find that I one of the ones I signal out for as particularly great was um, No Time to Think, which, which uh, few people think of as one of his great songs. 
But among the ones I really like a lot are uh, we better talk this over and true love tends to forget. You know, they're both marvellous nuggets of material. And, and not on the original list you wrote in the book. Let me, this is a, a bit of a longer passage, but it's, I think it's just a phenomenal setup for street legal, especially maybe a recast of the way, you know, most people think about it. The truly central album is Street Legal, on which every song deal with, deals with love's betrayal, deals with Dylan's being betrayed like Christ, and deals head-on with Dylan's need to abandon woman's love. Street Legal is one of Dylan's most important, cohesive, and complex albums, and it warns us, as pointedly as art ever should, of what is to come. It prepares us for Dylan's conversion to Christianity just as plainly as the end of John Wesley Harding prepares us for the country music of Nashville skyline, and just as plainly as bringing it all back home signals what is just around the corner on Highway 61 revisited. Street Legal brings it all together. Dylan the consistent moralist. Dylan the writer who draws heavily on the Bible. Dylan caught in the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. Dylan ending his relationship with Sarah. Dylan the betrayed victim, both of what he sees as Sarah's love in vain and all of us. Consummately, Dylan pulls all these strands together on this album, both on its minor songs and its three outstanding works. Changing of the Guard, No Time to Think, and where are you tonight? Yes. That, they should have put good. that on the back cover, I think, of, of uh, the reprint of the album. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, good. that's a good summation uh, of its strengths and its significance. Yeah. So what happens then in the, in the chapter is not a song-by-song song analysis, but a lot of commentary on, on many of the songs in a, in a phenomenal way that you know, there's no way to bring it into this talk because we could go down every rabbit hole and through every corner and I'll just encourage people to to get the book and read those details. You you do point out how both these large themes of his various struggles and focuses um how they play out, how the bible's uh, already woven in um and how this direction of what comes next, you know, gets pointed to. The the new pony discussion of of how sexuality is treated versus some of the other albums is is one example of a a little side track relatively speaking in the book, but for people who hear that song all the time and and want to take a new view on it, very enlightening. Um, anything else about the um any any songs on Street Legal? That right now you'd like to comment on a little bit. We can talk about them a tiny bit, and we'll we'll keep moving forward. Changing of the guard is, you know, um, opaque. It's not at all clear what he is on about, if you like. Mm-hmm. But it's also, but what is very clear is how important and powerful the song somehow is. I mean, this is maybe this is one of his secret strengths. That, uh, or a strength that we don't tend to acknowledge, which is that uh, it's possible to not have a clue what he is on about, and yet to have a strong sense that this is important material. And changing of the guard is a really good example of this. But 
but it's also just such a great track, you know, uh, the sweep of it, the 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 musical structure of it, the uh, the grandiosity, if that's the word, of it. Uh, it's just magnificent, isn't it? Uh, he was torn between Jupiter and Apollo. Every I, again, I I have a very hard time understanding how people don't enjoy this album. I mean, it certainly has a certain flavor, but as you say, the, the stridency with which he's putting it forth, this the sequencing, even the production. I mean, I do listen mostly to the 1999 cleanup. I don't know. There, there, musically, still, there's a lot going on. It's not a wall of sound, you know, that you can't find it. It might not be up to other standards, but um, well, it's also it's full of it's full of tiny little lines that no one else could possibly have written, like um, this weekend in hell is making me sweat. You know, <laughs> uh, of course, you know, anyone can say oh, I've had I have had a hell of a weekend, but for Dylan to turn this into, you know, a commentary on the fact that if he were in hell. You certainly would be sweating. It's <laughs> you know, it's just a tiny touch, but the album is riddled with those touches. I was listening this morning, and the line that caught me was the one about staring at the back of your head while you drink. And you know, uh -huh. it's, it's been you know, he's talked about walking into a room and changing it. And imagine your whole life, you know, if you turn around, somebody's staring. <laughs> yes, yes, it's unimaginably weird, isn't it? to have been famous since 1964. I mean, 1964, I choose that year because that's that's when he did his last sort of anonymous trip around America, even though, even though he'd already achieved the freewheeling Bob Dylan and all those things and such, such recognition in Greenwich Village. But that was the last time he could basically hang out around the States without being bugged all the time. Well, that's, you know, that's 60 years ago. Yeah. Unimaginable. So back to the, the path to the gospel years, you say this about Where Are You Tonight? The last verse of the song and of the album announces Dylan's final arrival at rebirth. He's made it at last. Yet what is most striking here is the humanity the generosity of feeling. There is no ending on a note of glee or superiority. There is only a gladness which Dylan admits to while admitting that it is lessened by the final loss of love. There's a new day at dawn and I've finally arrived. If I'm there in the morning, baby, you'll know I've survived. I can't believe it. I can't believe I'm alive. But without you, it doesn't seem right. Oh, where are you tonight? So there is street legal indisputably a major album, and surely a charting of Dylan's move to embracing Christ. I don't see, I don't see how you can hear that, and, um, and then on hearing Slow Train Coming, think, wow, how come this has happened? I mean... Um, but isn't that how it happened? I mean, it certainly is the... Is the the historical or the, the recreated story, did, did other people recognize that at the time and say this is a natural progression? Oh, I don't know. I mean, 
uh, I was only writing it retrospectively myself. I really think that's what's most impactful about this. You know, maybe this is 20 pages or 30 pages of the book of of recasting street legal in, in such a clear way in that. Yeah, I mean, uh, in other words, what I'm saying is that um, if someone had said to me, when the when the newest material was street legal, okay, um, I'll give you a million pounds if you can predict where Bob is going to go next. I'm not saying that I would have collected that million pounds by saying is going to be a born again Christian. <laughs> but do you remember hearing Slow Train for the first time? Yes, I do. And and um very mixed feelings. I mean, uh on the one hand, such a powerful vocal. I mean, the the vocal on the on Gotta Serve Somebody and on um all of it, really, most of it, uh, almost every track, and so well recorded, and you know, um, black black church music, uh, you know, musically fabulous. Uh, but on the other hand, very disturbing, as I've as I've written in somewhere in these books, um, that the person who had always said, "Don't follow leaders, watch the parking meters." was now saying there's only one authority and that's the authority on high it was disturbing it really was um and uh, when i first went to a a concert in that period which was in hartford connecticut in early on where he was just singing the christian stuff um the audience was repulsive it was it, it was full of these awful Born again people uh, saying oh. we've got Dylan now. All that I stuff. didn't know that happened. Yeah, I didn't know they they flocked to him. Yeah, they did. Uh, um, you know, I mean, we 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 concentrate on the people who booed or or the people who shouted Maggie's Farm or whatever. But uh, but yeah, there were the, he had a, he 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 brought a lot of those kind of. Um, weird people in and uh, and they were very gleeful and na na ni na na about it uh, uh as i recall and um and also the time i saw that concert um somehow bob was a lot less charismatic than he'd ever been before i mean this is quite a quite short time after i'd seen those 1978 concerts, not only in in London, but at Blackbush, and in Rotterdam, and in Paris, and you know he'd been phenomenally charismatic all through those whole that whole trance of shows, and then suddenly, you know this kind of um, weaker, weaker, less charismatic figure was on the stage. And all these hot people in horrible Jesus-y T-shirts were, were in the crowd. So, yeah, mixed feelings. So once again, and I think we're going to have to pull all these together, you pick your top uh, top songs. So from Slow Train, 
you focus on got to serve somebody, precious angel, slow train, somewhat surprisingly, man gave name to all the animals, and when he returns. Man gave names to all the animals hasn't really lasted too well with me. I mean, I like, I, you know, I like the way it ends by not specifying the last line. And you make a stronger biblical connection than I would have um, made, you know, really placing it kind of in, as a Garden of Eden. I don't know if parable's the right word, but... Yes. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, very clear, isn't it? The snake is the snake is the serpent. There's no question about that. Otherwise, what would be the point of the song? And then on saved, you highlight saving grace. What can I do for you? And pressing on. And you say Dylan's own need to seek the quiet place, the refuge, is a major theme of the saved album. Not as on street legal, from the vantage point of standing on the edge, still seeking but from a new saved position of looking back. So it is a kind of fundamental gratitude for salvation, for his very survival, in fact, that is being expressed. Uh, it's a beautiful expression of gratitude, that album. And um, What Can I Do For You is an extraordinary song. There's an excellent essay about it by Christopher Ricks somewhere. Um, and uh, anyone who has any doubts about Dylan's power as a performer in that period, just has to watch that video of Toronto, 1980, where he is moved to a phenomenal harmonica part in the middle and especially at the end, as well as the most devotional and serious delivery of that lyric which on one level is very audacious, you know, and it, it's a direct address to God. Okay, what can I do for you? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a brave song. Um, and again, as usual, it's, uh, it's riddled with a deft use of biblical text. Soon as a man is born, you know, the sparks begin to fly. That's a nice line. It's nicer still if you know that it's based upon man is born unto troubles as the sparks fly upward. I do want to point out that in the book, a lot of attention is play is paid to many of the songs on um, on Slow Train. And on saved, we're doing less song by song here, just because I feel like there's no way to do it, and the the large arc is kind of more interesting. You you then get to the the thing I referenced before, where you talk about um, this is in in context of saved and of this um, seeking of refuge, the the impact and the pressure of being Bob Dylan, and here's what the book says: the most casual reflection on how unimaginably great the pressure on him of being Bob Dylan must have been, argues for the truth of those lines. Just surviving the 1966 period and is more than most of us could have imagined, let alone the cumulative pressures of all the years since. It's hard, it isn't hard to see the appeal of a respite in Christ. 
this is actually what I've always thought of the of the gospel years. And in other words, I've always given Bob a pass for it, so to speak, because <laughs> because of if Bob didn't believe in a higher power, what's left other than to take it upon himself? In other words, yes. he needs that something for comparison. And you know, I I had you know some even religious friends years ago who said who knew I'm not a religious person and said, well, how how do you justify this guy? You know, you're the guy you uh, love so much, and I I just said. He's got his own reasons, and if that's what gets him through the day, that's fine. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So I, I really enjoyed hearing, seeing you make this this comparison, this connection. That um, you know, he's, he, so, he, he's so complex about it, though, isn't he? Because at the same time, you know, even when he comes out of that period, he can use it quite combative, combatively. Um, I mean, he. The first time he gives concerts in Israel, 1987, he's out of that period, in theory. And he gives a concert in Jerusalem and a concert in Tel Aviv. And unlike any other artist in the world, there is no duplication of song, a completely different set list from one concert to the other. But in each of the two, he throws a Christian song to that Jewish audience. In the Garden is one of the songs that he chooses to sing in Israel in 1987. Extraordinary, you know. So it might be a refuge when, when it first happens, but, uh, but it, it can also just end up being another weapon in his armory of take that, you know, ra rather rather similarly to uh, going electric and hurling that at a folky audience. So here's a, here's a section which I thought connected uh, to the modern day a little bit. His conversion to Christianity prompted what is essentially a restatement of that earlier agnostic seriousness, reapproached as prepare to meet thy maker. It is one of the basic major themes of slow train coming and saved. And it is a message that Dylan urges on us, regardless of our religious tenets. It is a message about not wasting our time in this world, regardless of what, of whether we believe there is another world to come. What that made me think of is, uh, I saw Bob a bunch last week and the, the, the line from Rough and Rowdy Ways of the enemy of an unlived, meaningless life came to me as I yes. read what you wrote uh, many years ago yeah. about the Slow Train and Saved albums. I find when he sings that line, it somehow comes across as a little bit on the boastful side. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's more or less saying, Look at the fantastically unwasteful, productive life I've had. Well, you know, I prefer it when the work makes you notice that rather than when Bob tells me. Tells me. But, well, you know, that is actually one of the problems I have with Rough and Rowdy Ways, that, um, that it, uh, I think it's a very fine album, but it does tend to, ask 
ask us to feel? Aren't I great? You know? I opened my heart to the world and the world came in. Oh, I like that bit. Actually, that's about the only bit of uh, of false prophet that I do like. Um, the other uh, one I the other one that I love is you rule the world and so do I, which I, I will say I take that as a paragraph, uh, a verse written to to uh, to Donald Trump. You you crusty <laughs> old fool with a poison brain. You rule the world and so do I. I'm going to put you in a ball and chain, or I'm going to see you in a ball and chain. So. I always choose to enjoy that as Bob telling <laughs> Trump off. All right, let's end with some controversy. At the end of this, this uh, I think I'm in chapter two here, after being seemingly um, well, positive and complimentary and highlighting all of the amazing things in this album, you say the following. The trouble is, of course, that pressing... And central as this theme might be, there is no disguising the fact that A Hard Rain Gonna Fall is an infinitely better song than Are You Ready? And what makes these Born Again albums so flawed and shallow in the context of Bob Dylan's whole catalog is that he has been satisfied on these records to assert and argue and declaim, but he has hardly bothered anywhere on them to fulfill the more important task of the artist. He has not created worlds here. He has only argued about them. Um, yes, I'm not entirely uh, in agreement <laughs> any longer with, with that, because I think that, uh, you know, it was my failure, even though I'd, I'd kind of documented all these detailed things that were so good about the records. I don't really know why I came up with that, that concluding summary, because, uh, you know, it suggests that I hadn't noticed many of the things that I've just finished writing about. It, it there is are little... songs, and Are You Ready is certainly one of them, where he does just assert and argue, you know, and those are the ones where he takes biblical text and does nothing creative with it. He just regurgitates it. Um, and all those, that minor part of that, of that part of his work where... Um, He's just basically saying, I'm saved, you're not, ha-ha. You know, that's the unpleasant, that's the unpleasant element of it. And um, even in a song like uh, What Can I Do For You, where he's saying that he is grateful for being among the chosen few, among the chosen few who will judge the many when the game is through, Dear, oh dear, you know, this is, uh, this is not Bob Dylan being creative. This is, this is indeed Bob Dylan just arguing on Jesus's side. Well, it is a little surprising, I will say, when, when you come upon it in the chapter, and, and because you've so forcefully made the case for what is good there for you know, 40 or 50 pages by that, by that point. Yeah. Um, I think, I think perhaps part of the explanation for why it, it concludes like that is because it was raw and new when it was written. And, you know, I missed the Bob Dylan, not only of Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, but of uh, From a Buick Six, 
um, more than I felt comfortable with the Bob Dylan of um, solid rock. Yeah. Well, that's another thing I think about looking back now at these songs is in, in, in sort of the way people, they like to look at everything and assess it, not you, I'm saying the, in the popular view, as if we had to be locked in the room with that version of Bob Dylan forever. But we, yeah. in fact, know we have the whole catalog and to have this amongst it yes. is, is very yeah. different. Yeah. Um, but when, it, when it's new, you can't help but feel it augurs something that's, that, that's, that we're now stuck in. Sure. Sure. So I want to conclude by saying these two are, I think it's just two chapters we just talked about, um, really are a valuable help to people to take a new view of, as I said, both Slow Train and of uh, the two main uh, Born Again albums. It's really an example of the value of the book where, frankly, you identify and explain and point out things that uh, I know I've listened to those albums for 40 years and, and didn't see. So it's they're, they're just great chapters. Next, the book goes into song analysis for a while. We have uh, Yonder Comes In, Every Grain of Sand, Joker Man. So we have a bunch of deep dive song views coming up that we will, that we will handle here on future episodes. But um, it's nice to see volume two out in the world. And thanks for coming to talk to us about it. Yes, thank you. It is indeed. Thanks for listening. This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com.